Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, today we're finishing up right in the eye. If you were with us at the beginning, it was one of the most fascinating stories, one of the most chaotic and actually disturbing stories in all of ancient literature, certainly in the Bible, how crazy it was, kind of this R-rated moment at the beginning. And we launched this series around this idea of there was a group of people who had this thought process of I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, and, you know, as long as we kind of put this American caveat on that, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, right? The problem is someone always gets hurt. And so we talked about this period in the life of ancient Israel, this period of about 300, 310 years, the history where that's how everyone just kind of acted. In fact, Samuel, the guy who was writing this account, he summed up the whole period of time this way. He said, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eye. Everyone did what was right. And it was kind of this summary. And there's a little bit of me and there's a little bit of you in all of that as well as we kind of look at that. And it's a tragedy for Israel and it's a tragedy for you and I as well. You know, because God established the nation of Israel to do something extraordinary. He was supposed to represent that they were supposed to represent the heart and the mind of God. And instead of looking up to God, they would look around them. And they decided that they were going to be just like everybody else. And they really forfeited their future potential for like a short-term fling with a king or a God that didn't love them, that didn't care about them. And so what would happen is time after time after time, they would disobey God. They would get into trouble, and a lot like when you or I were maybe a little younger and we got into trouble, we disobeyed our parents' rules, and what did we do? We called out, hey, Dad, Mom, would you come bail us out? They kind of prayed the same thing, God, would you bail us out? And so God would do that. He, they would break his laws, and they would say, God, give me another opportunity. And this is so amazing because of how God responded in the middle of all of that. He would say, I'm going to use you whether or not you want to be used. I'm going to use you even though you've been faithless to me. I'm going to be faithful to you. Even though you are not purely running after me, even though you have a divided heart, I'm going to do something significant through you. And you can choose, are, are you going to work with me or are you just going to watch me work? But I'm going to fulfill my promise. In the middle of this very, very dark time, God was at work doing something that they couldn't even comprehend. And that's actually where we conclude our time, is that in the middle of all of this, I'm going to spend just a few moments to prove to you that God was doing something significant in this time. In the middle of this dark time, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, God was actually decorating for Christmas. He was actually at work. I'm not, I'm not making this up because in the middle of this time when everyone had lost their faith, when everyone had gone in their own direction, when everyone had said, you know what, those stories my parents told me about Abraham and, and Egypt and all these plagues, no, that's just a myth to try to get us to conform to their standards. That's just to help us behave. God's not active. He's not doing anything. That's when God shows up and he was actually preparing the way for Christmas, the very first one, and he used two very fascinating people, two very fascinating people. The first was he used 
this woman who had thought, you know what, God's done with me and I'm done with God. And, and God's abandoned me. She was angry with him. God's forsaken me. She'd say, there's no evidence that there's a God. There's no evidence that God cares for me. Maybe, maybe that's how you might feel as well. And then in the middle of this story, God also used this man, this extraordinary man, that despite everyone else kind of doing whatever it is they wanted to do, he said, I think God is still at work. He decided to swim against the stream of culture and then to remain faithful to God, even, even when people around him would say, man, we can't see God working. God would use those two people. And this story is found in this incredible book of Ruth. You may have heard the story of, of Ruth, but what you may not know is that it actually takes place during the time of judges. In the middle of this dark, dark time is this bright spot, this chaos, and God was preparing the way for Christmas. In fact, when you read it, it's very much like the very first Hallmark Christmas special, except for it's real and there's no soundtrack. And I don't think there was any snow in this story. So I want to tell you that story. Amanda, we'll get to that stuff at the end here. I'm just going to move it. What we we're going to do earlier, we'll move it to the end. So I'm going to tell you the story in Ruth chapter 1. If you have one of the orange Bibles, this is in page 180. If you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. You can take that. If you have one, just leave it there, and we'll collect them and give them to somebody else in the future. But page 180, and this is what Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says. It says, in the days... When the judges ruled, so during that time, during that time period, when the judges ruled, these people that God would use in order to deliver and to deliver, like to administer the law of God, that's who the judges were. Don't think of, like think of a tribal leader, that's who they were. During that time, this 300 years, there was a famine in the land. There was not enough food, there was not enough work. It was this dark period. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the town of Moab. And so there's a, a map here. I think there should be a map. If you can show that map, it's the map of the Holy Land. And, and the Holy Land is like the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. And so you've got the Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan, and then the Dead Sea. Right down in the green section is Judah, Judea. That's where Bethlehem would have been smack dab in the middle of. And so there's no food. This guy says, we're going to make our way across the Dead Sea. I don't know, maybe it was so salty then, so buoyant that they could easily swim across it. I'm sure they went around it. And they went to the town, the area of Moab. Because maybe there, you know, we can scratch together a living. We can start over. There might be food in this space. Verse 2 says the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. So you get the picture, okay? Here's Naomi. Here's Elimelech. There's a famine. They can't provide for themselves. They leave Mo Bethlehem. They go to Moab to settle because there's not enough food in, to make a living in Bethlehem. And so they have these two sons, and they think, you know what? They need to get on with their lives. And so they say, we need to find some wives for our sons here in Moab. But the problem was, that was kind of against the law of Moses. Like Moses was like, hey, you shouldn't marry any foreign spouses. And this was not an, like an interracial thing. This wasn't a racial thing. This was more about if you marry them, they'll bring their false gods into your household and that will have the potential to pull you away from God. And so don't do that. This is a, a religious kind of thing. But when you're in Moab, you do as the Moabites do, and so they marry their two sons off to the, these Moabite women. And then Elimelech dies. The, old, the father, the father dies. This is such a big deal. 
this is such a big deal because at this point in history, um, a woman's provision, her security, her ability to interact with community, to own property, to do business deals, all that kind of stuff, all of that tended to happen through her husband. So it was such a big deal because she had boys, because she had boys, now that inheritance would go to them. They would take care of mom. That was very much their social security program before they had that. In fact, you'd want to have as many kids as possible because then they would take care of you in your old age. Your children were your social security. So she has these two boys. She's solid because someone's going to be there to take care of her. They, the two boys have their, do- their, their wives as well. But then... Disaster strikes again, and her oldest son dies. And then her next son dies as well. Here she is, this Hebrew woman in Moab, a foreigner. And the only people she's around that know her, that have any kind of relationship with her, were her daughters-in-law. And now, they're widows too, and they're Moabites. So Naomi, this is what she decides. She says, God's against me. God has cursed me. God obviously isn't around. He doesn't hear my prayers. And so she decides, I'm going to leave Moab. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. So he says to you, so she, she then says to her daughters-in-law, she says, I'm sorry I got you into this mess. I'm going to go back to where my family's all at. But listen, you guys are young enough. You can get remarried, you can move on with your life, you can put your pieces back together again and have a nice life. Not me though, God has obviously abandoned me. Now one of the daughters-in-law, she decides to take Naomi's advice. She stays in Moab, she tries to kind of get pull her life back together so she can get remarried. But Ruth, the second daughter-in-law, she decides to stay with Naomi. Now, this was a big deal this was because this was a very dangerous decision for her to make because in ancient times, especially these ancient times, it was a very dangerous place for women. And so for Ruth to say to Naomi, I'm going to stay with you, you know, Naomi replies, it's dangerous. You can't do this. You, when you leave Moab, you're going to go to my land, but you're going to be a foreigner there. They aren't going to be your people. They're not going to be your family. And someday I'm going to die and you're going to be left alone. That's a dangerous thing for you. But Ruth, in one of the most stunning passages in ancient literature, certainly within the Bible, this picture of agape love, listen to how Ruth responds. Verse 16 of Ruth chapter 1. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. This is amazing. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. She says, Naomi, I am going with you. Now, imagine this picture. You've got Naomi, you've got her daughter-in-law, this young Moabite widow, and they journey their way back around the Dead Sea, and they go back to Bethlehem, and they make their way into town. When Naomi had left, she had two beautiful sons. She had a healthy husband, and now she comes back, and the people of the town, it's a small town, they kind of see this group coming in, these two people coming in, and they just look at him, and they say, who is this? 
could that be Naomi? Gosh, she looks, may, maybe it's possible, but where's her husband? Where are her boys? What, what's going on? What happened? And so the women around her, they say, who is that? Naomi, what happened to your life? Like, what happened to you? And Naomi says this, says, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara, which means bitterness. Well, what are you bitter about, Naomi? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi's like, there's not a God. And if there's a God, listen, he doesn't know my name. He doesn't hear my prayer. If there's a God, all of these stories about what he did, you know what? He might have had an interest in our people a long time ago, but he's not interested in me. In this moment, it's as if Naomi is this reflection of the entire nation of Israel. God is no longer the God of Israel. God's abandoned us. But there's something fascinating happening. Because God's at work even though she couldn't see it. One of the things that I've been doing a lot of lately, I do this kind of around Christmas time, is I spend a lot of time in my workshop. And I enjoy making gifts for people that I'm going to be giving gifts to. And as I'm making these gifts, I'm thinking about them and I'm, I'm praying for them and I'm caring about them as I'm making something for them. But that includes my immediate family who can walk in and out of my shop at any point in time. And I want to keep a surprise for them so that they know, you know, like, hey, look at what, what I made you. I love you. You know, here you go. Right? And so I'm out there, and it, it came to my attention that as I have these raw materials right in front of me, they can see it and have no idea what I'm up to. They can see almost every step of the journey and not have a clue what I'm doing in my head. I'm making all the pieces. I'm putting it together. I'm gluing it. And they can walk right up and, hey, Dad, how are you? I'm doing great. And, and they'll have no insight to what's actually happening. But all the while I'm working, and there's going to be this time where there's going to be this reveal, and this is what I've actually been up to. Ta-da, here you go, I love you. Here's this gift for you. In the same way we see Naomi just like, God, where are you? I don't understand your hand that's at work. I can't understand. Yeah, it looks like maybe you're doing something. I, I just scratch my head about that. And yet, what we see is 3,500 years later, we're talking about Naomi. Because she thought God had abandoned me, but she didn't know that she was right at the epicenter of what God was doing to redeem humanity in the nation of Israel. She had no idea. So the story continues that Naomi and, and Ruth, they're back in Bethlehem, and it's barley harvesting season. Now, it's kind of a little bit of a time out on this here. So one of the ways that they would take care of people that needed help in their culture was, you know, again, they didn't have social programs like we have social programs. And so as the farmers would farm their fields, they would harvest their fields according to the law of Moses, they were allowed to go in and take like the first fruits of the plants, but they weren't to go and harvest over and over again. They were supposed to leave uh, part of the harvest for people in the community that might be in need to be able to go 
and to glean from the harvest. That's what gleaning is. In fact, when I was growing up, and we weren't destitute or poor or whatever, but uh, we had a friend that was a farmer and he was planting potatoes and his crop came to harvest and he had invited my family to come and to glean in the fields. And so my parents said, hey, put on some muddy boots, here we go. And sure enough, there was so many potatoes down in the dirt, we filled all of these bags, we fed our family by gleaning in the field. And so this field is there, it's time to harvest, and Naomi looks at Ruth and says, hey, we can't like get by on our own here. Newsflash, we're both widows, I'm too old to go get in the mud, will you go and glean from the harvest fields? And so she goes, and she does that. But she goes into a random field, and, it, and it's a very dangerous time because she's a woman by herself. There's no protection. There's no covering. The Midianites had been coming in and stealing harvest, and so it's like, who's this person? Why are they in our field? And she goes into the field alongside all the rest of the poor people, and, and she's out, and she's gleaning. And what happens is it tells us that she chose the, pre- the field of a guy named Boaz. We find out later on that this is actually a distant relative of, of Elimelech, her father-in-law that had passed away. And so Boaz, the guy that owns this field, he goes out and he says, hey, who's, who's that? Is that a, that's a foreigner. I don't, we don't know that person. And he asks his servants, who is this person? And they say, well, that is Ruth. It's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Well, news had gotten around that Ruth had chosen to stay faithful to Naomi. And Boaz saw that and said, this is an honorable woman who's done an honorable thing for the sake of her mother-in-law. And so he says to his servants, hey, listen, you keep her safe. You let her do her thing. You protect her. You protect her. In fact, Boaz replied, Ruth chapter 2, verse 11, Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother in your homeland and came to live with a people that you didn't know before. Listen, you, you're not even one of our people, he says. You've never even been here before, and yet you have been faithful to your mother-in-law. And this is what he says, then it's so out of character for the time with what was happening at that point in time, he says this. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. In other words, Boaz says, I still believe that there is a God that honors I still believe that there's a God who honors those who honor him, and I still believe in a God of cause and effect, and I still believe God respects those who make the right decisions. He says, for what you have done, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, the very God that Naomi had assumed had abandoned her, under whose wings you have come to take, in, to take refuge. And so Boaz says to these servants, let her be, Give her water, protect her, make sure no one assaults her. She's done this honorable thing. And so as a result, she's wildly successful. She shows back up to Naomi with like, like just all sorts of barley. And Naomi says, well, how did you get all this barley? She says, well, I, I met a man and his name was Boaz. Naomi's like, Boaz? That's actually my husband's, one of his distant relatives. That's amazing. So some time goes by, Naomi gets older, and she starts to realize, hey, someday I'm going to die. You need someone that's, you need a spouse, you need a husband, you need someone to help take care of you, you need someone that's going to be able to be a covering for you, protect you, all that kind of stuff. You need to get married and say, Naomi says to Ruth, you need a kinsman redeemer. Your Bibles might use the term 
guardian redeemer when we come up against it. But it's kind of an idea like, a, like an aven- avenger might be another word that you can use in that space. Uh, think about it like this. Like imagine you have some distant uncle got a lot of provision, a lot of means, this rich uncle, and kind of like in your family, you don't know him real well, but you know that he's got a lot of money, and so when someone had tro- uh, problems or trouble, they could always just go to Uncle Lenny, and he'll, you know, go to Uncle Lenny, and he'll help you out. That's what a kinsman redeemer is. It was an official title that was meant, uh, that meant that this person was someone who could, they didn't have to, but they could redeem, they could recover, Someone who had been upon tragedy, misfortune, or distress that was a part of your family. And so in this culture, the kinsman redeemer didn't have to, but could step in to do one of four things, or up to four things. First, they could be asked to protect an impoverished family member. So maybe they fell into poverty, you know, they have this, um, they have land, and, 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 and they might say, hey, harvest didn't come in, I need a loan so that we can feed ourselves, and they would go to the kinsman redeemer and say, can I have a loan? And they would say, yes, I would do that because I don't want you to go into like this really negative cycle here. Number two, they could repurchase the lost property. So many times there would be a lien put on property. Maybe a, the, the harvest didn't come in. They would get a loan on the property that they had. And, and so they could come in and they could repurchase it. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, because in those days, it wasn't just like owning land. The land was a part of your family heritage. It was how you fed your family, and that was gonna then provide for your grandkids and your great-grandkids. So when you sell that land, guess what? You get that money, but now your grandkids and your great-grandkids don't have a way to provide for themselves. It leaves the family. It was supposed to stay in the family. Now it's out of the family. What are you gonna do? So the kinsman redeemer, in order to make the family whole, including the property, could come in and could be a part of that to repurchase it. Another thing they could do was that they would redeem relatives who would be sold as slaves. So again, the barley harvest didn't come in. They had to like get a loan, they couldn't pay it back, and you know in those days, they could actually take someone as a servant or as a slave if they wouldn't pay it back, including your kids. You could take your kids, so you could go to a kinsman redeemer and say, I I, I actually like this child, I actually want this child back, will you help repurchase this child so I can have them back? And the last thing that they could do in extreme circumstances was this, was that if a man dies in the family and he had a spouse and didn't have children, that family line, his family line would have stopped right there. His spouse would have been uncared for. So according to the law of Moses, this kinsman redeemer was someone that could come in that could be asked to marry the childless widow so that that family line could continue. In this story, what we find out is that there's a piece of property, we don't really understand what happened with it, but it belonged to Naomi's late husband, and it was a plot of land, again, it was supposed to stay in the family, and they couldn't work the land, they needed to sell it in order to live, and so, again, that would impact future generations. And so, Ruth says to, excuse me, Naomi says to Ruth, hey, we need to find a kinsman redeemer. We need to find someone that will help us with this. Well, to the best of Ruth's understanding, you know, that wasn't going to happen because she's a Moabite. She's not even from Bethlehem. She's not one of these people. And the way that this would work is that in order for someone to be Naomi's kinsman redeemer, in order to redeem Naomi's line, they would actually have to marry Ruth for that to happen. 
So she says to Ruth, we need to find a kinsman redeemer. But Ruth, listen, here are our terms. There are terms, it's not theirs. You need to go and you need to ask Boaz to marry you. That's what it came down to. You need to ask Boaz to be our kinsman redeemer, which ultimately meant some sort of marriage proposal. Now, in our, our like, highly sexualized American culture, we just kind of have this picture of, like, you know, like, this, like, hot, young Moabite, Moabite woman and the 65-year-old Boaz, you know, and, like, he's like, hey, baby, you know. It's not there. It's nowhere in the text. That's reading something into it that doesn't exist. In fact, the opposite is quite true because it would have been a very risky venture for Boaz to take something like this on, to especially bring in a foreign woman, because once you do that, she's now a part of the estate, and if she has children, those children are part of the state, which means they're a part of that inheritance, which means if you already had children, now that's being split with those additional children. So it's a risky thing. And so Ruth, in this powerful narrative, in the most appropriate way for the culture, she goes to Boaz, knowing that he could say no. Because it's one thing to, to allow her to glean in the field. It's another thing to provide protection for her as she does it. But to bring her in, to bring all of that baggage culturally, relationally, family-wise that could have existed with her, that's another thing altogether. And so she goes to him and she humbly asks, would you be my kinsman redeemer? He says, yes, but there's one hitch because there's a relative that's even closer than I am. But because Boaz, he's an honorable man, he's going to play it by the rules, he's going to trust the process, he's going to follow the law, this is the law that God had established, and even though everyone else was abandoning it, I'm going to follow it, it's the honorable thing to do, this is what he does, he goes to the city gate, he finds that, that, that closer relative, this is where this transaction happens, and he says, hey, will you redeem Naomi, if you redeem Naomi, it's this sweet deal because there's this land involved, but it also means that you have to marry Ruth. It's a good deal, the land is a great deal, but it means that you have to marry Ruth. And this is what happens in uh, Ruth 4, verse 5. It says, Boaz says, on the day that you buy the land, he's talking to this other guy, the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow. Buy the land, Ruth comes with her, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So in order to get the land, you have to take her. Do you... Do you want to do that? Because if your sons have an inheritance now, if she has children, that's going to come out of your estate. Are you willing to do that, he asks. At this, verse 6, the guardian redeemer said, I, I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. Redeem it yourself. I can't do it. It's too risky. She's a Moabite. Who knows what her family will bring? Who knows how awkward Christmases are going to get after this? Um, I just can't do that. That's too much of a risk on my own estate. No thanks. So Boaz, this man who recognizes the honor in Ruth, who honored her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law that had decided, hey, God's abandoned me. Boaz marries Ruth. And that could be the end of the story. An honorable man who does something honorable at a time when most people are turning their back on God, assuming that God had 
abandoned them. And he takes this risk with this Moabite woman in order to honor his distant relative to make sure that she has protection and make sure that she has covering. That could be the end of it. Except God had made a promise. God had made a promise to his people that all the nations of the world would be blessed. That God would never leave them nor forsake them. And so Ruth and Boaz are married and God keeps his promises and he doesn't back, doesn't back down from what he promised. It says in chapter four, verse 13, that the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And Naomi, this woman who declared her life was bitter, that God has abandoned me, that doubted the goodness, the faithfulness of God, that had counted herself as someone who's afflicted and, a, and destined to die alone and abandoned, who had come to be shamed by her community, she experiences this tremendous, tremendous redemption at the hands of God. And it even records that these women who had watched her life go from full to empty, who said, is this Naomi? Gosh, she looks horrible. Even they turned around and they says to her, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And the author tells us that Naomi took the child into her arms and cared for him, and she looks at the eye, in the eyes of this baby, and she has found her redemption. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So they have this son, his name is Obed, and it means a servant or a worshiper of God. Can you imagine her life, which had been bitterness? She's now holding in her arms the very blessing of God, and it causes her to worship and say, God, you are so good. Right when I thought everyone had abandoned me, you were faithful through my daughter-in-law. You were faithful. He's been faithful to me after all in this tender, tender moment. He's not abandoned me. He's redeemed me. He's restored my family. And I'm not alone. And God, all I saw were these pieces and I didn't understand how they fit together, but you were doing something in your workshop and it's beautiful, and it's lovely. Life goes on, and Naomi dies, and Boaz dies, and Ruth dies, but their son Obed grows up, and he gets married, and he has a son, and his name is Jesse, and Jesse has a bunch of sons, and years go by, and God speaks to this prophet Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I'm going to do something new in your nation like you've never seen before. I know it seemed dark, but there's going to be brightness in this dark, dark time. I'm going to do something that I've never done before, and it's going to have ramifications for thousands of years. I'm going to find a man that's going to be after my own heart that's going to be the king of Israel. 
and I want you to go find me a king. So it says in 1 Samuel, verse 16, it says, fill your horn with oil, God tells him, and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, the Bethlehem where Naomi landed. It says, Jesse, the son of Obed, Obed, the son of Boaz, who took and, and risked marrying this Moabite woman who thought that God had abandoned her. It says, I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. And so Samuel shows up and says, Jesse, I need you to bring all your sons. And Jesse's like, hey, this is going to be a good day. One of my sons is going to be the king. This is great. He lines them up. He puts the oldest one right there. And he takes a look at it. And, 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 and all of a sudden, Samuel says, yeah, this is the guy. And God says, listen, no, no, no. Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. And hasn't that been the nation's problem all along? All they did was look and see what was with their eyes and do what was right in their own sight. Instead, this is what it says. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God says, no, it's not him. And so the next son comes along. He says, nope, it's not him. And nope, and nope, and nope. And all of a sudden, he gets to the end. And now Samuel's like, is this all your sons? And Jesse says, well, I have one more but he's just the runt of the litter. Certainly it can't be him, and he says, all right, well, you need to bring him out. And so Samuel goes, and he sees David, and now all of a sudden David walks into the pages of history, and David, the son of Jesse, was crowned as the king, and he was the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite who was honorable towards her mother-in-law. And then years go by, and another prophet, Nathan, shows up as David is king, and he says this to the king. He says, your house, this is what God has spoken to you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It won't be a short-time thing. It won't, it won't be a king that's going to fail you. From this prophecy, what we see is that there would emerge someday a Messiah, a Messiah that would look at the darkness and make it right. What all the world was waiting for, there would be a Savior, and he would reign forever, and he would be from the lineage of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, who married a Moabite who was faithful to her mother-in-law. And then David has a son, and 25 pregnancies later. In the biblical word, 25 begats later, the gospel writer records that Eliezer was the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. So 25 pregnancies later, the Messiah was born. Christmas Day, was born. And throughout his life, he wouldn't only be referred to as the Messiah, but he would be referred to as the Son of God. He was known as the Jesus, the Son of David, because he was born in the town of Bethlehem, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman who would marry Boaz, who would have a son. And that's how Ruthie and Bo saved Christmas after all. 
Now, this is amazing. This is amazing. Stay with me. If you're checking out, if you're getting distracted, stay with me for just a moment because when Jesus was born, all those years later, those wise men would show up not just because a baby was born, but because they believed a king was born. And Herod tried to snuff him out because he believed that he was a king as well. And then years later, Many years later, as Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, the appointed ruler by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, and when Pontius Pilate would stare at Jesus and say, are you the king? Jesus would stare down the power of Rome and say, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a king like you would expect. Because my kingdom is not the kingdom of this world. My kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of conscience. Not of oppression, but of service. And when you tell your, your subjects to do for you, I'm the one that's kneeling down to wash their feet. And when you tell your subjects to give their lives for you, I'm the one who gave my life for them. I'm not a king like you understand or like you would expect. So as we conclude this series as we step into this like incredible time, the celebration, I'm gonna ask you to consider doing something maybe that you've never done before. Is that you would simply decide, hey God, instead of sitting on the throne of my own heart, doing whatever I wanna do, whenever I wanna do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, instead of that, maybe would you say, I'm gonna recognize that Jesus would be the, king of the throne of my heart and I want to yield my heart fully to the invisible king and I want to invite him to rule and reign in me no longer from the outside in because that's what worldly kings do they force it on you but Jesus doesn't do that if you would invite him in if you would learn to live that as we've been talking about that you would learn to live with your arms and your heart wide open your heavenly father will revolutionize you from the inside so that it starts to affect you on the outside unlike every other king he's not going to force it upon you as the New Testament says that he just stands at the door of your heart and he's knocking. He's not forcing his way in. He's waiting for you to invite him into that space. And that's simply the opportunity that's in front of you. And you might even this morning be thinking, man, with all that I've done, you know, I, I grew up in a religious environment before. I've heard all of this, but it's been a long time and I've walked away from God and I've done what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. Will God actually take me back? The glory of the book of Judges shows us that God took his people back over and over and over again when they would simply yield their heart to the king that loves them. So whether or not this is the first time or the renewal for you, I just want to give you the opportunity to accept that, to open the door of your heart to the king that pursues you and that loves you. So with every eye closed and every head bowed here in this space, in this time, I'm going to give you the opportunity just to speak these words in your own heart. It doesn't matter that you say the right words. It's just a matter of you meaning them to God. And I want to lead you in this prayer. Would you simply say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your Son.
I believe he is the king. And I want him to be the king of my own heart. I believe that when he died, he died for me. He sees me, that he knows me, that he loves me. He's invested in me. And I believe that when he died, he took my sins. God, would you forgive me of my re- like overt rebellion, of just doing what's right in my own eyes. Forgive me of the times that I accidentally rebelled and I didn't even know I was running away from you. But God, would you open my eyes so that I can see the world the way that you see it. And God, open my eyes to see me the way that you see me. And give me the courage, give me the wisdom to live from this day out, from the inside out, to yield my heart fully to the King that loves me. It's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen.